Hi there, welcome to And We're Rolling, the show hosted by me, Steph Hunt, where we chat with the world's best broadcasters, foreign correspondents, creatives, athletes, leaders about life and career, but mostly about what scares them the most, their secret tips and tricks, and how they find the grit to do it anyway. If you're into the food and wine scene, especially in Melbourne, there's a good chance you've met Jess Ho. Fine dining is a glitzy, showy, Instagram-worthy world where people love to be seen. But in their new memoir, Raised by Wolves, Jess lifts the lid on what is often a toxic and messy workplace. Jess says hospitality staff are overworked, underpaid, dealing with rude customers with ridiculous requests and crazy food trends. And then, of course, there are the celebrity chefs. In the memoir, Jess also tells the story of growing up Cantonese in the outer suburbs of Melbourne, bullied, facing racism, living in a dysfunctional family who only made peace over food. At 15, Jess won the right to move out on their own and from there find their own community and forge a career. Along with running restaurants and owning a wine bar, Jess has been a brand strategist, a food and drink editor, worked on podcasts with BBC and SBS, and as a judge on a TV food show, which Jess says didn't go to plan at all. Jess Hope, congratulations on your debut memoir, Raised by Wolves, got under my skin in a really good way. Like I couldn't, I couldn't shake it off. It took me through all the emotions. I was, you know, I read it on the train going to work. I read it in the hospital waiting room. I was laughing. I was crying. It, it just, I don't know, it took me on the waves. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I like to think that I give people the feels. <laughs> yeah. Definitely the feels. It really sort of focuses on on your life. It's a memoir. It looks at the Melbourne food and high-end wine industry. It gives us a really good insight into that industry, which can be so snobby and exclusive, and, and you touch on that. But you also sort of show us aspects of how it's all about camaraderie and trust. I think it, it's one of those crazy things because everyone looks at food and they think of it as this – luxury you know let's all go out for dinner oh how much is it going to cost especially in this climate uh you know where it's award season we've just had the sand pearl top 50 um and then you know everyone's like oh i want to eat in this restaurant but i have to like buy a plane ticket i have to make the booking i have to do this and there are all these takedowns right now of these prestigious restaurants that survive off free labor and you know i think what i want people to ask themselves is like what is the purpose of dining? What do you want out of your meal? Is it community or is it status? I've eaten at these restaurants because I was completely blinded by this. And I'd sit there going, I, I, I've had 27 courses and there are 30 more to go. All I want to <laughs> do is leave and everything tastes pre-digested. <laughs> like, and it gets to the point where you're like, is this food or is it art? Um, and then, like, how do you rationalize that? Uh, and then when you leave, you're like, what kind of satisfaction do you feel? Is it uh, emotional? Is it conceptual? Is it artistic? Uh, what is it meant to be? 
but you also remind us that there are so many great eateries all around us in the suburbs or not in the coolest hotspots that, that have so much to offer, but also that they're not trying too hard. They're very proud of, of what they are. And I think if you look at the technique to do something beautiful and simple with very few ingredients, it takes a lot more restraint. And editing is something that people learn because it's like when you build a website and you go to a site, like a, a you know, site engineer, and yeah. you're like, okay, you can do all these things, but is it usable? It's the same thing yeah. with food. Is it yeah. edible? Is it delicious? <laughs> yes. um, like... <laughs> Um, I think because I come from a background where, like, for example, you go to Hong Kong, you go to a restaurant and you're like, this place does clay pot rice and that's all they do. There are other things on their menu, but everyone's like, it's only there to like fill the gaps. Like you want some veg to feel better about yourself. You can have it. It's not great. And you know, you go somewhere for soup, you go somewhere for bitter tea. And I think immigrants especially come over with that mentality. You know, they do one thing insanely well, uh, whether it be a particular cuisine, um, they specialize in seafood, they do noodles, uh, and you're like, perfect, that's what I'm going there for. And then you go to, you know, these big mass produced restaurants where they want to be everything to everyone. You know, it's like that person who wants to be liked so hard. And then you're like, have an opinion. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In the book, you talk about being quite quite an anxious child, a Cantonese background, growing up in the outer suburbs of Melbourne. And you touch on a lot of bullying, a lot of racism. You say that you didn't really trust anyone. And, and, and of course, that makes absolute sense. Was it in the, the restaurant community that you began to sort of feel that sense of community? Yes. Uh, and it's... Because, like, I think when people gravitate towards working in restaurants, it's, you know, they don't particularly like standard nine to five. Uh, they don't mm. fit into institutional learning. Um, and it's just a clash of personalities. And if you look at the way that the education framework has been developed, it is a very young industry. And just because we're doing it the way we're doing it now doesn't mean that that's the correct way. And there are different streams of learning, uh, you know, neurodiversity etc i have met the most intelligent people i've ever met working manual labor jobs uh and you know we all gravitate towards hospitality it doesn't mean anyone's dumb it just means that they don't fit into a particular institution Mm. um acceptable institution uh and then when you're working together because you're all working towards a common goal it doesn't matter you know, you, you're not arguing. You just want to get to the end. You want to give someone a great experience. Uh, and then you develop that trust with them because you're like, you've got my back. You know, you'll help me carry a plate. You almost burnt yourself to help my table get their dinner. And then at the end, you, you all say thank you. And there's that trust. And you don't have to pick apart someone's personality and be like, I don't like you. You know, there's none of that at all. Yeah, so irrelevant. Can Can you do the job? Can I trust you? Yes. And, you know, I've worked with, you know, and you'll see these personalities in the book, like rich people's kids who want to prove that they don't need their parents' money to survive. And then I've worked with South African guys who moved to London and worked as go-go dancers before they were like, you know what, I'm going to be a chef. (laughs) You also write about the fact that you were so overworked. You were so run down. Late nights, early mornings, and then you're 
your boss, this is when, when you were working at a prominent restaurant in Melbourne and, and, and your boss said, you know what, you need to take a holiday, go to New York. How life-changing was that trip to New York? Oh, man, I think that trip really made me rearrange my filing system in my brain because when you're well first of all I was so young when I was in that role and it was a prominent role there was so much visibility on me I was in the media all the time and I was I think I was 22 um didn't take a holiday for so long and it was like go on holiday and then I'm like you know there's always that thing of like something doesn't feel right and then when you're in it of course you can't see it because you're in the bubble and then you leave the bubble and you can look at somewhere else, which is basically, you know, a mag- magnetized version of what is happening in Melbourne. And you're like, oh, that's what's wrong with food culture and food media and praising particular people over another community. Um, yeah. And I kind of came home really uncomfortable and jaded, uh, but also like so young that I knew I wanted to change something, but not how to change it. Just looking here from the book, you were writing about, you were there in 2013. It was a time that was so blokey. It was all about showmanship, bold flavours, extremes, um, intense heterosexual masculinity and meat. And when Lucky Peach was very, very popular and you say that you were so obsessed with these, you were so obsessed with these American culinary gods, then you you really did realise that there was, a lot of racial and, and cultural appropriation of, of, of food. It was, you know, just stars in my eyes, young and naive. And, you know, like hospitality admittedly is a very male-dominated, like misogynist culture. And not being aware of it, I wasn't able to be critical of it. And, you know, I was part of it. Uh, and even in the language that people use um, to communicate signs and it, it like to get things done very quickly to each other even just telling someone to harden up like it's very it, it just perpetuates that cycle and the abuse and then there is tv shows that are coming out that kind of highlight this toxic hyper masculinity um yeah and it was really funny because like when I was in New York I didn't put this in the book but when I was in New York and I met all these different people in hospitality because they can tell that you're from hospitality um they're like oh what restaurant are you going to next and I'd be like oh big name chefs blah to try the ramen they were like I worked for him he's such an asshole um you know like threw something at me is really disrespectful you know steals tips and I was hearing that from everyone I'm like oh same as Melbourne <laughs> Like, it's, it's just everywhere. Oh my God. There's so much obsession with it, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Now, I want to move on to one of the standout chapters, which starts and it ends with the line, I'm not made for television. <laughs> um, and in your blurb that uh, in, in the press that I was sent, it was made very clear not to ask you about this unless you'd had a stiff drink. So I don't know whether you've had a stiff drink. Oh, I haven't. <laughs> but, you know, I'm ready. I'm primed. Um, <laughs> So this is all about your experience of being co-host of a reality TV food show. There were some good moments, but there were some uh, challenging moments that made you realise that you're not made for TV. Well, you know how you always think the grass is greener on the other side. Like, 
you know, you leave high school and you're like, you know what, university is going to be better, but it's just the same clicks in a different environment with uh, more information. And you go, you know what, when I get a job, it's going to be better than university, but it's still the same. And you've got the same kind of politics that are going on, the same personalities. Uh, I was convinced to do this show and I was like, yeah, why not? Uh, like, you know, I've done hospitality. How bad could it be? It is just as misogynistic and sexist and restricting as working in hospitality, um, except worse because you don't have your own agency, plus you're open to public scrutiny. Um, and it's not to say that, you know, t all television is bad, uh, but that style of quote-unquote reality television uh, is a very uncomfortable place to exist in uh, and it's made for a very specific person uh, and you know I'm just too opinionated and uh, too non-binary to fit into it. <laughs> and you write about working with the stylists who eventually you two had a, you had a good rapport you're able to get, kind of work together. Oh I have a funny feeling that she was briefed uh, something else, because uh, a lot of people in television uh, and people don't realize this, they're all freelance and they're all contractors. So they're doing multiple jobs at a time or they're like, you do wardrobe for this, you do wardrobe for this. They receive a brief. And when we first met, um, you know, she kind of turned up with all these clothes and I was like, ah, oh, but that's fine. And like, you know, being in hospitality, I'm very agreeable. I'm like, I can make it work. I can make it happen. What do you want? And her being a stylist was like, I'm going to respond to your reaction. And so we met somewhere in the middle. Um, and it wasn't really until like towards the end where things got more comfortable and we got away with a lot more. <laughs> What about podcasting, though? Because you do have an SBS podcast, Bad Taste, which which I love. Are you a lot happier in that space? I was actually talking to another author. Um, mm -hmm. They were like, how uncomfortable are you doing all this publicity? And it's like, well, I write, so I'm not yeah. seen. Uh, and same with podcasting. I don't have to be seen. It's a non-visual medium. Um, so it is very comfortable, and you get to mess it up, and you get to turn up in a hoodie and it's fine you gotta wear your soft clothes <laughs> yeah. and it, it, it's just very awkward when people ask you questions on the fly and you're like hmm how, let me get back to you with an essay in uh, 25 minutes <laughs> i think i feel quite vulnerable writing a memoir and putting it all out there but but then again this is your truth this is your word and it's an important story to tell it is and what i didn't it was one of those weird spaces because obviously i wrote it in lockdown we're all going through something in lockdown. And I was like, you know what? Yeah. If not now, when? Um, and what I really didn't expect, um, because, you know, in lockdown, I, I am, I'm an absurdist at the best of, I fluctuate between absurdism and nihilism. And there are days where I'm like, oh, life doesn't matter. And there are days where I'm like, life doesn't matter. Uh, and I, I was going through that when I was writing the book. And when it came out, I did not expect the number of direct messages from strangers uh, being like, oh, I feel seen, uh, and not necessarily like Asian Australians either, but people working in hospitality, um, people who 
work in particular institutions where there are these hierarchies that are not sustainable um, and it takes a toll on everyone's mental health. You write a lot about your about your childhood and about how you wanted to go to Germany. You organised or, or won a scholarship to go and then your mum found out and was quite angry wanted to keep you in the country and then called the hospital and said that that you were a danger to yourself. Can you talk about that that period? So in a lot of Asian families, uh, it is a matriarchy and um, a lot of mothers, um, and it varies towards certain extremes, um, have a lot of control over the family. And, um, you know, there is a thing where it's kind of like generational trauma is the reason why Asian mothers are the way they are or even Asian families are the way they are. But, uh, yeah, it's... My mother was just a very controlling person. And even though she knew I got this scholarship to go to Germany and study, it was, like, up until the last possible moment. uh, And then, because I was meant to leave the next day, she decided, you know what, I want to show you how much control I have over you and you cannot escape me. Um, and like, you know, there's no, I can't ever understand what goes on with her and her brain. Um, and I think there was a moment when I was there where I was like, you know what? I nothing you, I'm not going to let you affect me anymore. Um, and I moved out of home at a very early age because of it. Um, and you know, I think as an adult, maybe I compartmentalize too well (laughs) um but yeah it's it's just meant that I can live a more productive life and not let that trauma affect like not let those past hurts make the decisions for me today I was I was so amazed to read that I think it was was it 16 did you say you won the right to move out on your own and support yourself and and you write that it was pretty easy you found to to shop for yourself and look after yourself and get yourself to school you'd been doing that already but it was sort of sitting at home with your own feelings on your own that was the hardest yeah because like you know as a kid you know I, I was living in a constant state of terror so you know there's the fight flight or freeze and then when you kind of remove that thing of terror you're like oh what am I now uh who am I meant to be Like, what kind of person do I want to be? And, you know, it took me another 10 years to figure it out. (laughs) That's where you moved into into the restaurant industry, into the hospitality industry, and really found those. That early crew, do you think, that really great, solid early crew that you connected so well with? Yeah, and, you know, I was really lucky. They're just excellent humans. They still are. (laughs) Like, you know, I see them... It's one of those things where we don't necessarily see each other all the time, but we're all friends on Facebook. We know what's going on. Um, You know, so-and-so has a business. So-and-so has gotten out of hospitality. Someone's had another child. And, you know, we're each other's biggest fans. (laughs) I love it. I loved reading all the stories about about the connections and the antics and the, the nights out and the early mornings and the idiot customers as well. Oh, the customers. Uh, Someone was talking to me today uh, about a flight they were on 
uh, coming back from overseas and the person next to them being very, very entitled and yelling at a steward or a host uh, for bumping into their handbag. And I'm like, oh, that's nothing. I remember constant requests from people who wanted a chair for their handbag. (laughs) And it's like, I'm sorry, the restaurant is full. I can't give you a spare chair because it doesn't exist. Like little things like that. And then on cup day, you know, can I have a chair for my hat? And it's like, that's what your head's for. It's a pretty busy (laughs) restaurant. Your hat is not getting a chair. No. You also write about the the ongoing racism and and the disrespect in restaurants, colleagues who who smuggled in really expensive wine into uh, a family a family restaurant and, and insisting that they needed wine glasses and, and ordering dumplings and speaking to the waitress who, you're right, was, had a likely law degree, but they were speaking to her as if she had a learning disability, even though she was fluent in English and they were sort of speaking in that, that half mime, the half, the half shout. Oh, I still see it today. You know, like if I, like, it's crazy because like I will work at a restaurant for someone, uh, just helping them out for one night and someone will talk to me like that. And I'm like, what makes you think I don't understand English? <laughs> no, we need to do a lot better. It's shocking. How did you write? Did you write to sort of sit down and, and bang it all out? Or were you writing it in parts? Had you already written parts in, in journals? Or Oh, um, this is going to make me sound like um, a psychopath. But <laughs> I, I was given the word count and I was like, okay, let me write a chapter outline did some division, looked at the maths, and I was like, okay, I've got six months to write this. Um, If I use my overachiever uh, high school brain and do this many words a week, Mm -hmm. I will be done at two months. If I take a breather and blah, 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 I I wrote it in four months. Four months, that's quick. Thank you. It's when you break it down, you're like a thousand words a day and then use the next week to look over the words and then you submit it. And that's a chapter down. It's very achievable. I think it's because, um, well, as you read, I played the piano when I was a kid uh, and hours and hours a day. And it'd be like, you have to do this kind of grading. You have to do blah. And I was taught piano by one of the conductors from the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra who has like a Mao's Last Dancer backstory, but for playing the piano and conducting. The way that he taught me to play was like, do this movement uh, learn the movement and then play it so often that you, you're really just looking at it as a guide to understand where your hands go next. And then, then you learn the next movement. And then all of a sudden you're like, you've learned an entire like composition and it's only been a month. It all comes together beautifully. While you're crying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. And I think, and I think it's that kind of mentality. Um, and same with hospitality, like you grind through it. And even if it's crap, at least there's mm. something there that you can fix. Mm. Coming towards the end, but you, you write a lot about, about your mental illness journey um, and, and feeling, feeling good and, and other bouts of not feeling so good. How do you look after yourself now? How do you, how do you check yourself? Oh, I'm going to give you a very, very boring answer. And unfortunately... You know, you know when people are like, you need to sleep for seven hours and hydrate and exercise and uh, maybe not drink 
excessively all the time? Unfortunately, that is the answer. And having a good support network, um, because, you know, the particular mental illness that I have isn't necessarily, like, it's not treatable by medication. I either respond or I don't. Um, and, you know, therapy... Like, it, it's one of those things that's hard because when you're depressed, the last thing you want to do is talk to someone. Like, a lot of the time you can't function. Um, so, you know, it's being kind to yourself and um, going, you know what? Maybe I should eat a meal. Maybe, maybe today if I have a shower, I have one. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, that we think, if, yeah, if, if we're not eating, we're not exercising, stressed staring at screens for so long and it's really hard because like if you can't concentrate it's um, difficult to do the things you love let alone identify the things that will get you into a different headspace um, and sometimes doing things like lying on the couch watching the same television show for the 50th time is the kindest thing you can do to yourself and eat a piece of fruit <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wise words from Jess Ho today. This has been an absolute delight. Thank you very much for coming on and chatting about Raised by Wolves, your debut memoir. Still with me. It's, it's hanging on. I can't let it go. Thank you so much and thanks for having me on the show. And We're Rolling is produced by Habari Productions and Stephanie Hunt Media. You'll find all our show notes and extra words of wisdom on our website, at stephaniehuntmedia.com. If you like this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will get a real kick out of it. And also, if you can, follow, rate and review. If you didn't like it, don't worry about doing all that. It's fun. Until next time, be kind to yourself. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sky Manson and my podcast, Company, tells the story of ambitious women in the bush. I never thought that I would end up back here, but I'm so excited. Thinking of my ideal morning being up again before everybody else and often in the garden, often I have to say still in my pyjamas with my work boots on. I follow a lot of food influencers on Instagram Sky and I kept seeing these American influencers constantly eating beef jerky and biltong. Our homes are our sanctuary. They're our restaurants, they're our cafes, they're our nightclubs, they're our everything. Produced and recorded from an office on my farm in New South Wales, the company podcast aims to celebrate the lives of women living and working outside of the cities in rural, regional and remote Australia. For four seasons each year, Company is released weekly at 6am on a Thursday morning. Find the podcast, Company, wherever you listen to your podcasts and sign up to the newsletter at mansonandcompany.com.